Welcome back, everybody, to 64, a chess podcast. I am your host, David Visgon. I'm coming at you live from Copenhagen, Denmark, and uh, I have my first return guest in the history of the podcast. So please uh, give a warm welcome to uh, National Master Jeremy Kane, uh, who works as a curriculum director at chess.com. And uh, I had Jeremy back in July, so you can check out that episode where Jeremy teased a book called The Next to Last Mistake. And uh, this book is going to be released on Amazon very soon. And so uh, we're going to do a little deep dive into uh, into the book, its creation, who it's for, because uh, I did get an advanced copy. I think it is excellent. And so, yeah, I guess we'll just get right into it and uh, we'll talk about Magnus Nepo. Um, so, Jeremy, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me back on. How, do, how does it feel to be the first uh, return guest on 64 Chess Podcast? It's excellent. This is the only chess podcast I've been on so far, so I figure I'll just keep coming here as, as long as I can. Yeah. As long as you'll uh, have me. Yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> now, before I begin, uh, I want to thank my sponsor once again, uh, Aim Chess. Thank you for sponsoring the podcast. You can use code DAVID30 to get 30% off your first month of Aim Chess. If you're new to the show and you want to try out Aim Chess, uh, it is, uh, uses advanced analytics basically to help you improve your game. Uh, but... Aim Chess actually has a brand new feature with the approaching World Chess Championship, which we will talk about. Um, you can go to magnusnepo.com to check out the Magnus Nepo Prediction Challenge. Everyone can log in and add tips on who's going to win, what the opening is going to be, how many moves will be played. There's a lot of prizes like chess boards signed by Magnus, chessable courses, premium memberships to Aim Chess and Chess24, Play Magnus apps, etc., etc. You can create a group, invite your friends and followers. And uh, you guys can team up together, compare within the group. Uh, it sounds like a lot of fun. I'm definitely going to check it out. Uh, I think the website is going to be launching on... Uh, I think it's already launched, actually, as of the release of this episode. So go to magnusnepo.com and enjoy the uh, Aim Chess uh, Magnus Nepo Prediction Challenge. I know I'll be checking that out. And, uh, you know, if you like what you see from the Aim Chess team, again, you can use code DAVID30 to get 30% off your first month of Aim Chess. And now... With that out of the way, I want to talk a little bit about this book because, like I said, I got an advanced copy of this book. I've read most of the text, and uh, I have to say it's unlike any chess book I've really read before because it felt to me, and I mean this in the best way possible, it really felt to me like <laughs> uh, like it was like uh, like you had homework almost. And I thought that was that's really cool, like the, the you know the levels of tests and stuff like that, and the explanations and the answers. So I guess what I want to first ask is on a basic level. Who is this book designed for and why did you decide to make the book? So I wrote the book, started the process about four years ago. Actually, uh, my son was about to be born and I figured I was going to take some time away from playing, you know, classical games, just hard to find the time and be awake enough when you're a, a new parent. And I thought that was a good time to kind of write down some of my thoughts. And so it was targeted for, a lot of the students I taught, so kind of anywhere from, say, a 1,000 to 2,000 uh, ELO. And it's focused on kind of recovering after you make a mistake, because occasionally we play this, you know, brilliant, perfect game, but the vast majority of the time we get in some trouble and I think that's a huge difference, you know, hundreds of, of rating point difference for the people who can mentally stay resilient, keep figuring out what they're playing for and come back from most of those games where they're in some trouble versus people who just feel bad about themselves and collapse right away. Now, when you, you so, you know, I did a little bit of research because I, when I was, I was looking through some of these positions, I saw, you know, Kane versus Morozovic and Kane versus Karyakin. And I was like, that's a little crazy that you, you know, you're playing against. And then I, I look online and sure enough, you're like a 2,700 blitz and bullet player on, on chess.com, which I did not expect. I mean, that's really good. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so obviously you, you take a lot of positions uh, from your own games. Uh, you take a lot of positions from famous games. And you also take some positions from some, you know, some of your students' games. Um, so I guess I'll first ask, you know, when, when you're taking positions from your own games, uh, <laughs> 
is it like painful to kind of revisit some of these uh these positions where you might have where you might have missed something or when you're like you're going through some of your blitz games online is is that a, and you know kind of publishing you know your your mistakes basically um <laughs> Yep. Yeah, again, one of the premises of the book is we all make lots of mistakes in chess and we have to, uh, we're judged not by whether we make them, but how we can kind of handle them once they happen. And so it's important for anyone's chess improvement to look at your own games a lot and figure out what you can learn from them. Or if you're a chess coach like me, what other people can learn from them too. And part of my reasoning uh, for using a fair number of my games and a fair number of sort of these lesser known games is just that the classics are out there, right? If you're kind of a well-read chess student, you're familiar with tons of these games from the world champions and other elite players. And you're not going to be familiar with the, these games that I was either playing or witnessed. And so that gives, I think, some extra value because these are going to be unique puzzles. And also often there's kind of a nice story or a nice extra insight from that personal connection to the game. Yeah. One of these, uh, one of these anecdotes you have is with, uh, with uh, GM Jesse cry of the, of the chess dojo. I, uh, you know, who's uh, high on my list of, of guests I'd like to bring on. Um, and you, you kind of talk a, a little bit about like the difference between, you know, where, where you are and where Jesse is, you know, as a grandmaster. Um, but I, I liked how you have the, this whole anecdote of the, of the car ride home. Because uh, yeah, I, I don't know how much I should be revealing with the book, but I thought that was uh, it was it was very charming to kind of see how um, you you really talk through like the psychology of the game versus you know just finding these best moves. Um, I'm kind of bringing this up because I kind of wanted to just kind of ask your opinion. Um, and actually, I did ask something similar to um, one of my previous guests, uh, Fide Master uh, Michiel Abelm. Uh, you guys could check out that episode as well. Um, but you know, in the chess world right now, there's a lot of focus on improvement. There's a huge group of adult improvers, and I, I think that a lot of the improvement books are kind of targeted towards you know, the, in the advertising sense, are like reading this book is going to give you 300 yield points, or reading this book is going to you know make you like unstoppable attacks. And in practice, it doesn't really happen. Um, so I guess like if you had a selling point, um, what 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 would this selling point be for this book? So I think. You know, if someone reads this book and studies it, it certainly can help them gain rating points. But also, especially for people who play, you know, longer time control games, one of the least fun things about competitive chess is when you're in a tough position, you know, one hour into your four hour game. And what do you think about for those next three hours? Are you just beating yourself up? Are you just sort of extending the game out of habit? Are you resigning? And so this should hopefully make those last three, those, those, you know, the rest of the game a little less uncomfortable and a little more interesting, even if you're just adjusting your goal towards, okay, there's almost no chance I win. How do I try to draw this game? Um, I think in some of his great books on chess psychology, uh, GM Jonathan Rousen talks about um, sort of thinking yourself as the goalkeeper in that kind of situation, right? If you're a, a goalie in soccer, you're never going to, you know, essentially never going to score a goal on your own. But if you're stopping that penalty kick, the game just becomes, can you block it? And that counts as a win for you. And that's a little bit what it's like, say, if you're down a pawn in an end game, can you block the other guy from scoring? And you have, um, you, you have a lot of examples of this, I think, particularly in the, in the, the first half of the book. Um, but you also talk about things like, uh, like perpetual checks and stalemating. Um, well, you know, like I think most people who watch YouTube videos are probably familiar or on chess are probably familiar with the Eric Rosen trap, you know, where you, you know, he finds a way to, to stalemate, uh, somebody Definitely. he's some, done, he's done it so many times. Yeah. This has to be his trap. But I, I do think it's, it's very cool, um, that, uh, you know, there, that there is a book on the market now kind of, which is about resilience, um, in, and, and the, the psychological aspect and rather than focusing on, you know, finding the best move in, uh, good positions finding the best move or the most interesting move, even in the worst, in like the worst positions. Thanks. Yeah. I thought this was definitely an underserviced part of the kind of chess literature. And there actually have been some, there's been some good material on it since I started working on this book. I particularly like uh, David Smearden's book on swindles. Um, 
But that is a little bit different. The, the swindles are like, you're clearly losing. Let's try to find some trick, um, which is also great, a great skill to have and important to practice. Um, my book's a little more, you're in trouble. Let's try to defend. And maybe that involves a trick or maybe it involves, it can, it, it's a whole spectrum. It could involve, you're technically losing. You need to do something tricky to, to turn it around completely. Or it could be, you're in trouble, but you're not technically losing yet. How can you save it? So I want to I wanna just uh, give a little um, preview of the, the skeleton of this book. Uh, there, there's basically, it's focused on four defensive techniques. There's, uh, you know, complications, uh, perpetual checks, fortresses and simplification and stalemates. Um, and then at the end of every section, there's basically practice tests. And then there's another three tests where it all kind of comes together. And like I said before, there are, there are a lot of, a lot of positions, um, for you to study. Um, but you know, something I was kind of wondering as I was going through some of these positions today at work, um, I apologize to my boss, um, for that, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> I saw a lot of a lot of these positions were taken actually from online games of yours and and other people. Um, and why I'm asking this is because typically when I go through a chess book, I like to have a, a chess board out. I don't get to play much OTP these days, but um, I do play a lot online. Um, with these kinds of positions, do you think they should be solved uh, with a real board or 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 online, or does it not really matter? That's a great question. Um... I think it depends what you're trying to work on for yourself. I know that, you know, traditionally most chess books are based on classical games and for something, you know, teaching some, some types of strategies, it makes sense to check out, you know, the best players playing their best games, which is going to be, you know, Magnus Carlsen playing classical chess or Stockfish playing classical chess. Um, but for something trying to help us, you know, cl more club level players deal with what the problems that we're actually facing, it makes sense to look at look and practice the ways um, and the types of positions that we're actually doing, which for us are, you know, mostly not classical. And so often online or often blitz, things like that. And in terms of how you should read the book, I think you probably want to do it the way that you're going to mostly be using the, the, the skills. So if you're mostly trying to make fast decisions in your own games, maybe just look at the diagrams and come up with what you were going to do. If you're mostly playing classical on a, you know, a physical board, probably set it up on a physical board. And that said, even if you're solving it, just looking at the diagram, Often in the solutions, there's some more context, and it could be helpful to play things out on a board from there. Was there was there anything um, you know when you're obviously so so obviously in the book? Well, it's obvious to me, but hopefully obvious to people who <laughs> read the book once they buy it. Um, which I, I I do recommend when it releases. I, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of this. I'm, I'm I'm glad I have an advanced copy because I'm going to be trying to do a couple of these uh, positions every day. I think I think it's a really valuable skill. Something I struggle with as a chess player, I think, actually, is, is the resilience. I, I've uh, I almost quit playing chess for like a, a month uh, the, the other day because I kind of uh, I had like three straight games where I was up a rook, up a knight, up a rook and knight, and three straight games I lost all of them, lost the script, <laughs> lost focus. It sucks. Um, but that's also like you know when I when I tell my friends who are lower rated, you know, I'll be watching them play online and they'll. Uh, you know, they'll lose a rook or they'll lose a, you know, they'll, they'll blunder a fork. I'll say, you know, game's not over. You can always find complications. You can always find things to play for. And so um, that's, that mean, that's a, a little tangent. But something I, I wanted to really ask was, you know, was there anything that you learned about chess while making this book that you didn't know before? Yeah. So I think on the chess side, um, something I learned since the book took several years is just how many resources you can uncover by consistently looking at these games, you know, multiple times. Um, actually, in one of my last edits, I was looking at uh, one of my most memorable games personally. It was a, a, I included it as a sample game in the book, and I found, you know, after looking at this game for like you know, five years on and off, I found just an amazing resource where some move I thought was, you know, sort of the only move was actually a mistake. 
because there was some endgame Zugzwang showing up a few moves down the line. And I think that just shows how rich the game is, that I've looked at this game with computers for several years, and I'm still uncovering new things. Is that more that the computers have gotten better or that just that, uh, you know, or, you know, the depth that you had access to with the engines has, has gone higher or, or that's definitely part of it. And it's kind of funny because we always view computers almost as infallible. But then we look at computers from two years ago with today's computers and we're like, oh, that's foolish. They missed all this stuff. Yeah, it's, it's funny looking at like the TCEC, like Matthew Sadler's tweets. I don't know if you keep up with those, but when he shows these engines fighting yeah. each other. And you look at the like whatever the predicted Elo is, what a thirty six hundred or something, and you just realize like yeah we are horrible at chess. Human beings are are terrible at this game, <laughs> and they still I lose at I, that level. Uh, <laughs> yeah, when I look with engines, I find they're always like, oh, you should have played G four here in like ten percent of my games. I'm like, I did not consider that move in any of these positions. <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of playing one G four. Um, so you know, unironically, so you know, you can always throw it in there somewhere. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so something else I wanted to ask you about the book. Um, I, when you were writing this book, like what was your, I guess, what, what are some of the, like your favorite moments about writing this book? Is there like a specific like games or uh, like ideas that you wrote about? I, I think by the way, the prose is, is fantastic. I think it's, it's extremely simple. I really think anybody of all ages can, can read this as long as, as long as you're at a level where you can kind of read some, you know, some sort of more abstract story. But I, I think I actually think this book would be fantastic for 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 young kids who are playing chess. I think this is Thanks. like uh, yeah. I think I, I I mean that's the first thing that was going in my mind because I mean the the, the test uh, the way you present the answers it's not just like in it's like you know I have these uh, Jakob Ogard books. It did feel basically like a Jakob Ogard book except a lot more because um, you know it presents the idea that you have to learn and then it gives you some examples and then you have the test. But in his books, it's like, uh, and no disrespect, it's just I'm not like a, you know, I'm not at a, I'm not at a grandmaster preparation level. But in his books, it's like, oh, obviously there's this one move, uh, and then like, you know, maybe one or two variations, a couple sentences, that's it. But the, so the explanations for each of the, you know, the test questions is very deep and uh, also written at a level that I th really think that anybody who has some, some like le understanding of the game can follow. Thank you. That 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 means a lot to me. Yeah, I think the format is somewhat similar to the Agard books. Um, and his stuff is great. I have a bunch of his books. And they're sort of often geared towards getting, you know, a 2300 up to 2500. And I think a 2300 might enjoy my book, but most of the puzzles they'll be able to solve. Um, a, a bigger thing for my book is, you know, let's help that 1800 get to 2000 for the first time or the, the 1000 get to 1400, something like that. Uh, but I, I think that the, the design philosophy of the book is, is really interesting because even when you ask some of these questions, so it's not like you're just given a position like white to move. It's, it's not just that you actually give a prompt almost like to give you a way of thinking in these kinds of positions like, uh, you know, black is up two pawns. Like find an interesting move that you know, like like that kind of thing. It, it, you're you're not always asking for you know what the engine might say is the best move. You're looking for things that with I, with rich ideas behind them. I think you know. I think that's uh, e even if you don't get the answers right. I think even any anybody who's interested in this kind of thing, the kind of strategy to just sit down for like half an hour with this book every day and just try to get their brain thinking in a in a different way with chess. I think that's like extraordinarily helpful. Um, yeah, I, I do think, you know, with the engines, it's, it's ones and zeros and it's an evaluation, but studying that way is not, has a limit for us because we can't ever make our brains think the way a computer thinks. So I think having the context and one of the big goals in this book is to just get people thinking, what am I trying to do in these bad positions? Um, cause you mentioned my games with Jesse's and actually my big lesson from my first game with Jesse that I talk about in this book was not even that the move I played in a critical position was theoretically worse than the other options, but it was just the wrong way to attack a position. I was in trouble and I just let him simplify to a winning end game um, when I should have complicated. And so a lot of these book, this book is trying to help people work their way through that sort of decision. And I've, you know, double checked everything with the engines. There shouldn't be anything wrong in there, but it's going to be more practical than what you'd get just looking at the positions with stockfish. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, also when you when you 
I don't know what you think about stockfish in terms of uh in in terms of like adult improvement, because right? I I I I, I kind of hate the engines a lot. Um, it's 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 very hard sometimes to kind of uh you you kind of look through a game, you think you play really well, and you know the engine starts telling you, it's not even moves that they they just don't make sense, and it's like you know even even on chess.com with the I, I mean I love the opening review like you know the the game review feature and the the accuracy score. But sometimes, I mean, the position will, you know, your bar will be like plus 1.2 or whatever, but you will just feel like you don't have any chances because whatever the engine evaluates is as good as like something that you might never play or imagine playing. Yeah, so I think engines are an incredibly powerful tool. Um, and there's a reason we're getting, you know, younger and younger grandmasters. because I think they're growing up with engines and it's a lot easier to access an engine than a coach. Um, but you have to know how to use that tool. And a lot of times the, the information it's giving you, like you just said, is like, oh, this is 1.2, but what does that mean? And they'll give you moves that you can't really, that you're not going to practically find over the board, or there'll be several equivalent moves from the evaluation standpoint, but it doesn't tell you at all what's more practical. Um, and so that's where, yeah, chess literature or, or getting a coach really helps you. Um, in a way that the machine can't do on its own. So obviously you have a extensive. We we talked about this on the last um, podcast episode, but you have uh, like an extensive career as a chess coach, um, working at a scholastic level, working one on one with students. Um, you've also been a professional chess player, basically. You know, playing in in tournaments. You know, I think you you mentioned you won the Wisconsin State Championship. You talk a little a little in bit about that. In the U.S., there's not really enough money to talk about that as a professional chess player, but yeah, I appreciate it. But but I but I, I guess what I'm what I'm saying is, you know, you 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 played like serious tournament chess for for many years, like yeah, when yeah. you were younger. And um, I, I guess what I'm what I'm wondering is, you know, all your experience of coaching, how do you try to translate that like kind of more one-on-one -on -one experience working with students into a, a book format where it's like, you know, you it is your words. But people are kind of on their own. How how much explanation do you try to do, and how much do you try to let the the re, like the reader figure out for themselves? So something I always did, you know, with with in person coaching also was I'd give a position, give some context, and let the student really think. Um, because something I'm always wary about is too much passive learning. Like if it's easy to just put on Gotham Chess, who's who's great, but you just put on Gotham Chess. And you watch him talk about his game for 20 minutes and you're like, I learned something. But if you don't ever use your brain, then what did you actually learn? So you've got to engage with the material. And so both in a lesson and in the book, I want some, the student to actually like take the time. Don't just peek at the answer. Um, and if you're engaged with the position and, and you know, grappling with it, trying to find what you would play, I think you learn something, even if you didn't get the right answer, maybe especially if you didn't get the right answer, and you can kind of see how a stronger player thinks. And that's really the role of a coach more than any individual bit of knowledge is just sort of sampling for the student how a strong player thinks in these positions and giving the student a chance to do it themselves. So when is the, the official release date for this book? So official release date is December 14th. So if you pre-order, you know, anytime in the next month, you should get it in time for the holidays. So maybe a good Christmas present for, you know, young chess players in the family or maybe uh, a early chess present for uh, like a Christmas present for yourself. Um, do you think chess books are, uh, are a good Christmas present? Uh, obviously only for chess players, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if there's a chess book that is a good Christmas present for everybody. Uh, Bobby Fisher teaches chess is good for like a kid who's not into chess yet. Yeah, that's yeah, that's the one. Or you know, if you if you have some some understanding of of games and Bobby Fisher's uh, you know sixteen memorable games, that was the first chess book I've ever read, and that was the one that got me hooked. Yeah, I didn't know how to read algebraic notation. I kind of just guessed what it you know you, <laughs> see the, you see the symbols in that book, and uh, then I got hooked. Um, and I think Bobby Fisher teaches chess has the lines drawn on the page too. You probably yeah. don't even have to be able to read that much. Yeah, they, they, it's. Uh, I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty uh, it's it's pretty crazy. But you know, something something uh, I'm curious about. A lot of, a lot of chess improvement material is it, it is online. I mean, Chessable 
is uh, it's a tool that, that I think anybody who's serious about improving um, with chess has used to, to some degree, um, whether it's just buying one course, or even checking out the short and sweet. So, you know, when you make a when you make a book uh, that you can buy physically, I guess what what is what do you think is like the the nice thing about having a book in the in the paper format rather than the online format? Obviously, there's pros and cons to both. I've made many podcast episodes talking about this kind of stuff, but, <laughs> you know. So I think a big thing about a book, besides you know you can just you can read it on the beach or just take it wherever, um, is that if you're reading a book, you're sort of by definition doing active learning, right? You're physically looking at the pictures, your diagrams, you're turning the pages, you're looking up the answers all yourself. Um, whereas I think videos can be great, but you definitely risk that you just sort of turn on the video and you're entertained by it. But unless you're actively trying to, you know, quiz yourself, what would I play here? You might not be learning. Yeah, it's like all the times I used to buy like popcorn in college to uh, watch uh, Agamotto videos. Um, and then say, oh, this I'm doing serious chess study when I was just, you know, I was really, you know, how he says, like, uh, for those of you who want to enjoy the show, that was me. I was fully just enjoying <laughs> the show. No pause. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I no. think like for very few people is chess a career. Most people, chess is a game. You should get out of it what you want. Um, but if you're serious about improvements, you shouldn't trick yourself into thinking that that's helping you get better. Yeah, I, I mean, I, and I've gone on rants about, you know, the, the whole improvement quest. I, I, I think it's, I, but I think this book is, it, it, it's just, uh, it's fun because it, it like you said, it, it, these kinds of things really aren't covered that much in literature. And I think especially with the engine, it's kind of like, oh, well, why would you look for moves in, in a position where your, your you know, engine says you're minus three? Like, why would you? Oh, of course you're lost. But, you know, you, you, have, you have this book, example at the start of the book with uh, Caruana, who was, you know, he was up like two pawns or something. And he ends up losing the game, falling into mating net. Um, and, you know, he had like a completely crushing position. So, I mean, if it can happen at that level, it can happen at our level. It can, Yeah, definitely. I think it can happen to anyone. Even like uh, Caruana actually just did a chess.com course covering his match with Carlson. And the first game from that course or from that match, Carlson was completely winning and Smoking could him, have, yeah. you know, could have taken a huge step towards defending his title. And he wasn't able to convert on, you know, on the biggest stage. And I think something that always happens when you look at either of those Caruana games we just mentioned is the engine will tell you, you know, the critical moment where it technically went from winning to drawing or, lo- or losing. But I don't think you get to that critical moment if the defending side doesn't put up you know, 30 moves of really tricky defense first and eventually kind of forces that error. Yeah, actually, I I played. Uh, I went to France a couple of days ago, and I and I played my friend on uh, on Leeches. Um, we we played some uh, some Karokan game, and I was I was the, the engine said I was minus seven at one point, but I didn't feel that Oof. way. I was I was putting up a good defense. The material was equal. wasn't finding the right moves. You know, suddenly you trade down into some normal uh, normal end game, and then I, I turn on the Jets a little bit, and I won the game. But then you know when we look Perfect. back at it. We look back at it with the engine, and uh, and he says, "Oh, but you are completely lost." And that you know that might be true for according to the engine, but you still have to find the best moves. You know, it, game's not over until it's over. Um, and I think that's like the, I th- I think that even you know getting this out of the book um, today, I hope that that's something that'll help me with my mentality when I play chess, because I think I'm so used to the engine evaluations of openings and stuff like that from when I train, that uh, I forget that you know material isn't everything. And, uh, it, you know, it's a, it's a strategy game at the end of the day. We're not machines. We make mistakes. Exactly, yeah. Um, and, yeah, one useful way of looking at it, um, I think this is another Rousen point, um, is that we have, you know, beginner players and all of us sort of struggle with being too subjective, right? We're looking at things too much from just, like, I feel this way about the position and we're not being objective enough. Then you get a little better and you're getting better at getting objective and thinking, what is the you know, technically right move in this position? And then if you want to play you know, really well, like say, like look, look at Tall or Lasker or something, you're not only, you understand that you're subjective, but you also understand your opponent is subjective. And as important as the computer approved move is what makes my opponent uncomfortable? What's going to get him or her to make a mistake? I guess uh, the last question before before we we tackle you know this upcoming because it is World Championship week as of tomorrow it'll be one week until the match so I do want to talk about that but I guess my last my last question for you about this book and maybe this will be nice for people who buy the book um, little extra content um, 
But what what is the, your favorite um, game or example from the book, or one of them that just uh, that's very memorable for you that you you think like when you were writing the book you're like oh people are really gonna love this because there it's a lot of original positions like that I've never seen anywhere you know usually in a lot of like the kind of chess books there's a lot of games that people have seen before but I think aside from a couple of world championship games I mean I consider myself at least for my level pretty well read on the chess literature um and on, on world championship matches and whatnot and, and i was i think most of the games i was like positions i never even seen before so yeah i wanted to give this book a bit of a, a unique feel and just not you know redo positions you've seen you know 10 times before um so i think my my from a personal standpoint my games with jesse were a big influence i have two games in the book um kind of learning from the first one and trying to apply some lessons in the second one and uh, just from outside of my own games, uh, a game I found really inspirational and included was uh, Taimana versus Larson, where Larson played sort of really aggressively, but not going after the king, aggressively in the sense that he grabbed an exchange, or you could call it accepted an exchange sacrifice, because he sort of trusted his defensive instincts and found a very a completely unique defense that I've only seen, you know, in that game and one or two other times in all my days in chess. Um, and he just held on and won with the extra exchange. And it sort of shows that defending isn't just, you know, punishment for making a mistake. It's also over the natural course of playing a game. Well, you might have to defend for a while. Yeah. I, I think also, you know, the, the whole thing about uh, unique feel, I am, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little curious about like, you know, how you just decided to, pull this whole array of, of of games like like i guess where yeah obviously you take a lot from your own games like wins losses and whatnot you take a, a lot um but uh also like how do you were you doing that kind of research was it a lot of just looking on on like chess base and stuff for weird positions i mean I, it's I mean, <laughs> do you just sure. google do you google like weird defense and in, 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 like so in as a chess coach so even before i started thinking at all about the book um it's helpful to have big files of different tons of different themes. Um, just as I'm going to say, I wanted to do a in-person lesson for a student that needed to work on pins or, you know, or discovered attacks, just any tactic you can name, any positional motif you can name. And I just have these chess based files that have been growing for, you know, 15 years now. Um, and sometimes it'll just be, I'll see a grandmaster game or even I'll just play a blitz game and I'll just put it in the appropriate file um, for reference material later on. Well, yeah. So, uh, guys, uh, next to last mistake, um, get it on Amazon. Uh, is it going to be published in print maybe? So you can get it on Amazon. You at the moment, it, I don't think it's in any bookstores, but it is on the Barnes and Noble website. So I encourage you go to your Barnes and Nobles and ask them for a copy and they should be able to get you one. And maybe if, if we do that enough, they should start stocking them in the stores. <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, that's really cool uh fantastic so yeah keep your eyes peeled out for that i'll make sure to uh to write a glowing review once uh once once it opens up and uh i i actually think i'm gonna buy a copy for my brother um uh, because i think he's starting he he just started playing chess a couple months ago and i think he's starting to get it to, to that level where like this could really help him with how he thinks so i think that's gonna be a fun little maybe for me hanukkah present for him but uh yeah <laughs> wonderful thank you yeah i think it should be a, a great uh gift for the chess players you know i do want to move on now uh to talk a little bit about this uh world chess championship match you know you work at chess.com and I, and um it's very cool that nepo's like become a partner with chess.com i mean you know and caruana too i mean that's that's kind of like those two huge grabs so i guess i i want to ask uh hey, this is not that related to the match but like just like what do you think is going to be the benefit like uh, on the short term and long term for having those kind of two guys represent the, the, the brand and the company? Well, I think it's great, um, mostly because chess.com just is the biggest chess community in the world. And so all these people who go to chess.com are now going to have access to, you know, Caruana's opinions about literally the next world championship match after the one he played. Like, I don't think there's anyone who understands playing with Magnus better than Caruana does. Yeah, I mean, especially because, you know, Magnus even said after their match, like, he considered basically in classical that they were, it was a tie. Like, he, he and at the time, their ratings were almost identical, too. Yeah, by like, like a it was just point an, one decimal point or something. Yeah, crazy. Basically. 
Yeah, I, I think it's um, it's really cool. Also, this this article that Peter Doggers wrote, uh, well, he was the interview really, but, but it, it, I know it was turned into. Uh, but I actually, I only found out recently that it was actually a whole video. So even though I'd read the interview, I just decided to watch the the video where there's even more questions that was kept out of the print. But that was a fantastic interview, and I mean, I'm I'm really excited. I actually, I'm not sure how am I gonna watch all this coverage. Like you have Karwan on one hand, you have. Uh, like Anish Giri and Yudit Polgar and another one. And, and, you know, obviously you had, they have this, I really don't know how I'm going to, I'm going to watch all these commentaries. And maybe I'll just, like, <laughs> I had this joke on Twitter that I was just like play all of them at the same time and get three times as much of the chess, but yeah, they really need, what do they call it? And for watching football, what do they have like ESPN red zone that shows you when there's like a important moment going on and a thing they need, they need that for the commentary. You can up oh, Car- Carwan is about to make a point flip over to that one. Uh, yeah, I actually, I, is, so is Caruana, I actually don't know, but is, is he alone in the commentary? I think Naroditsky's also become like a permanent. Like, I'm sure people are going to be there. I'm sure, yeah, Naroditsky's going to play a role. I, I assume Danny Wrench is going to play a role. Um, we'll find out soon. Maybe a Hikaru sighting, perhaps? Sometimes I would he, not be surprised. I'm, I'm yeah. sure he's going to cover, you know, be talking about it a lot as well. Yeah, I, I, I imagine he'll probably cover it on his channel or something, and just because uh, he's been he's been watching a lot of these uh, these uh, speech as championship games and uh, and um, like the I don't think the team championship yeah. as much, but it's it I don't know it's 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 interesting how. But yeah, Hikaru's got to be the favorite for the speed chess championship. Oh, 100. I mean, I, I think he's won it the last three times. The only, the only person I think I would kind of be worried a little bit about is Nihal Sarin for him because Nihal is. Uh, uh, he's really an animal. Like I watched him. Yeah, I, he's. <laughs> geez, I mean, no, I, I just want to say I watched the thing with Grishuk, and it was like you know they were like going neck and neck, and then like in the bullet, like Nihal just like murdered him, and like he called he card did the same thing to Fiddler. Yeah, that's kind of the funny thing about the speed chess format is they'll have these blitz matches where you know the super GMs can mostly hold their own against any other super GM. You know, they might be behind by a few points, but it's you know it's a match. Mm-hmm. And then when you get to bullet, you just see the difference between someone like Hikaru and someone like Fiddler, who's, you know, a great grandmaster, but probably doesn't, hasn't played as many bullet games as Hikaru in his lifetime and just gets, you know, I think the score in the bullet was like 11 to one. It was 11. It was. And uh, that was, I mean, that was crazy. I I had the audio on it and, and, you know, Danya and, uh, and Robert has just like freaking out about about what was going on. I mean, that was and you know credit to Peter's Fiddler. I mean, he really showed he's still like a world class. Uh, you know, in the five plus one, it was ba- they were basically even in the five plus one, basically even in the three plus one, and then like it just he carved turned on the Jets. I mean, that was like unbelievable. That's yeah. it's nice they do the bullet last so that it feels like a close match, and then yeah. someone wins by ten points anyway. Yeah. The speech chess championship is it? Uh, I, obviously, there's this whole you know because Carlson has chess twenty four and all that, but you you kind of do wish that there would be more of these events where you really do get all the the world elite playing together. It it, it is it is for me it is a little. Although I do think at least an online blitz that Hikaru is the the best of the best right now, but I I do wish that there is a little there is some peace or some agreement to get this. Uh, you know, to get Carlson into more matches and whatnot. I think they're making some progress there. Um, I know right now there's just the world championship. So obviously Carlson's out, right. But Carlson actually did play the speed chess championship last year. And yeah. Got, I, uh, upset by MBL. I do. I remember that. Uh, that was, uh, that was, I, that was, that was crazy. I also, we found out that he Nakamura has a Lee chess account, which is hilarious to me. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, he's, uh, I, I bet most of those top guys have both. Like Okay. Actually, one time um, I played someone who was, you know, rated over 3000 just in some random bullet game on chess.com. And I looked at their history and I thought it seemed really suspicious. And I actually asked the fair play team and they were like, oh, yeah, that's Magnus. <laughs> I was like, oh, OK, not a computer. It's uh, hilarious. Was it the TL, 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 that one by any chance? I don't think so. It was just one one of his anonymous accounts. I'm not going to say what it was. Yeah, but... you better better not. We don't mean, but that's uh, that, that's hilarious. Wow. <laughs> anyway, I lost. <laughs> yeah. Well, it happens. I'm I, I'm I'm not sure. I would I would stand a chance either. I would love to play a game against Magnus. I think that's like my uh, my dream. I played against MVL. Uh, that was that was the, the 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 and I also I played against John Bartholomew on his stream and I got I actually put up a better fight against MVL than John Bartholomew. So you know. <laughs> Make that what you will, um, but going back to this this match, I mean, I, I think most people predict that Magnus is going to win. 
Um, I, I don't really think it's uh, fun to really talk about the percentage or whatever. I, I, I guess what I want to ask you is, um, you know, Nepo, who, by the way, is, you know, one of the best Blitz players on chess.com. Like, I think yep. he's ranked number two or three right now. Um, but uh, a lot has been said about his stability improving and whatnot. But but I think what do you think is like the most underrated thing that he has in his disposal in terms of fighting against Magnus? Um, so you mentioned his stability. And I feel like if I was, you know, 70 points lower rated for a 14-game match, you don't want stability. If he plays at his level and Magnus plays at his level, Magnus should win comfortably. But I think the good thing for Nepo is he gets these hot streaks. If he has a hot streak and Magnus is a little bit below his average, suddenly Nepo could win the match. So do you think the Nepo white or black pieces will come out swinging in the first few games? Um, Because it is 14 games this year. Yeah. It's... I feel like, except for the Topalov matches, almost no one comes out swinging too hard in the first one or two games. Um, Although, yeah, I, I am reading. I'm reading that book, and uh, well, at least against Anand, I think. It, so it appears to me that that first game with a nice sacrifice was purely just because Anand messed up his prep and played right into like Topalov's prep. The line that they gave, yeah. you know, if he had played this move one thing order, probably would have fizzled out to like a quick draw. But he, Vichy forgot his prep or whatever, and I think he he the next game he bounced back in game two with the win. Um, but I mean, yeah, true, yeah, but but it is, uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I think that what people should be betting on rather than the percentages is like how many decisive matches are there? I mean, how many decisive games will there be in this match? And I think that's something to look forward to is Nepo is definitely a fighter. And I expect we'll get obviously more decisive games in the last match and probably more than the Karyakin match, which remember was just two decisive games. Right. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised um, to see like three or four. Yeah, something I'm hoping for is I'd like someone to take an early lead because that just makes things more interesting going forward. If the yeah. match is tied, then you get a draw and both players feel like it was equally good for them. But if someone's ahead, every draw gets you closer to that person winning the match. And so suddenly there's a lot more pressure every game. Now, we also, like I mentioned before, we do know that the Nepo, I think, unlike uh, Karyakin and, and Karwana, I mean, not not that I am anyone to criticize their, you know, their blitz skills as someone who's like 400 points worse at blitz than, uh, you know, than, than Rapid or whatever, which is still nowhere near their level. Um, but Nepo, he is a lot closer to Magnus in, in, in terms of blitz and Rapid than some of his previous opponents. Um do you, do you think that uh, that maybe part of the strategy will be, you know, try to hold as much as possible, given that the, you have this 70 ELO point gap, and then try to get some chances in the Rapid and Blitz? Um, I do think that's a I don't bit think of an anyone, strategy. Yeah, I don't think anyone wants to go to Rapid and Blitz with Magnus. Like, I don't think he's going to do anything crazy to avoid it, but... I feel like, if anything, the gap between Magnus and the world in Classical is smaller than the gap between him and the world in Rapid and Blitz. He's just, he just crushes people. Yeah. No, for sure. Um, I'm really curious to see what openings are going to be played in this match. I'm like, because obviously this, like I've mentioned on other episodes, the Sveshnikov became like, you know, the, the Versace of, of the chess world in terms of just, <laughs> it's like high fashion. Um, everybody and their friends, you know, was playing uh, the Shvashnikov at some point. Um, <laughs> so I think it's it's going to be really, uh, really interesting to see. Like, what I, I can't imagine that Max is going to stick to that. He'll, he'll probably make some change, but I'm curious. Are we going to be seeing Italians? Are we going to be seeing Lopez's? maybe Carol Kahn? I'm hoping for a Carol Kahn personally, but I don't know. Yeah, unless both players go for Sicilians, I wouldn't be surprised with either, you know, an Italian or a Roy Lopez or both. Um, I feel like both of them are pretty versatile in their openings. So I expect we'll see them kind of bouncing around, probing for weaknesses. I'm, uh, yeah, I, th I think I, I, I'm really more um, puzzled by what Nepo's going to do. I'm wondering if he's just going to kind of take like the Boris Gelfand approach, who also I think was considered, you know, inferior to. Anand when they played and he just played some absolutely bizarre openings that they completely did not prep for and uh, I don't know if he's going to just look for for some some kind of systems like that uh, that are just you know very strange sidelines uh, hoping that you know Magus's team hasn't prepped as much 
And honestly, there is something to be said about you know Magnus's prep in in the Caruana game. It, it, it didn't seem like there were some there were some spots in that Caruana uh, was way more well prepared in in most of those games. I'm not sure, but also Caruana, at least in a couple of years ago, might have had the best prep we've ever seen. Yeah, like, and also like Rustam he, he had a great Dijanov team too. players yeah. Kajimjanov and unbelievable, like like unbelievable, uh, like coach and and uh, just an opening genius. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I would say at least a few years ago, Carlson maybe had a reputation for not having the best prep. And I'm not entirely sure that that's true. I just think maybe his prep is slightly more aimed at getting the opponent confused than it mm-hmm. is at getting an objective advantage. Because I think he tends to think if we just get a position and I'm better at chess than you, I'm going to eventually win. So here's another question. I again, I know you work more on the curriculum side, but this is something I'm curious about because when Caruana played um, two years ago, and again, I've talked about this on other episodes. So for some people, this might just seem like uh, you know a parrot, you know, squawking about you know Magnus again and Caruana. But um, I was kind of shocked when we had an American in the World Chess Championship, and the only thing he really got was like some you know medium sized New York Times piece about him and there wasn't really that much buzz around it although i do remember on twitch that there was a lot of streams of actually the world chess championship um surprisingly um i think it was similar to like what the average is on twitch now but for back then it was crazy to have like 15,000 yeah. watchers or whatever which is the, the norm now um you know obviously you know nepo is he's from russia and you know there's going to be this narrative about you know maybe the russians getting back the 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 throne after so many years, like, you know, 20 years since Rick, <laughs> like won against Kasparov. Um, you know, there's hints of that too, in a way, like uh, Kramnik and Kasparov had a, had a relationship and then, you know, this kind of big upset. But I, I, I guess like, you know, for the American audience who may just be getting to chess the first time, um, what, uh, I guess, what is the, what, what's the, the one liner for this match that, that should keep people hooked? Like if you watch like, you know, Mayweather versus Pacquiao, they have the tagline, you know, best versus the best like well what's like i guess what's the tagline for this match sure so the, the angle for this match is magnus is probably the best chess player in the history of the world but he has a losing scoring classical against nepo so the question is just is nepo something that magnus can't solve and in terms of analogies it's it's a good analogy for the kasparov kromnik match because for whatever reasons Kasparov always had more trouble with Kromnik than anyone else. And he had a similar, you know, big rating advantage going into that match and didn't win a single game. You know, there's also there's rumbles on, on, on chess Twitter and, you know, by, by, you know, people who, who claim to know stuff about Magnus and that he may, you know, if he loses this match, given his history and some comments he's made about the, you know, the burden of the throne that he may not ever try again. Do you think that's uh, that's realistic? You know, in the in the event that that Magnus loses, do do you think it's feasible that he just will not compete for the throne, and we have some new gap in the you know with the illegitimate uh, second, <laughs> like like Fisher nineteen seventy two to seventy five where? Yeah, I, I hope not. I I just very I love watching Magnus play, so I want to see him compete for the title. Um, but I guess I do think from his comments that it sounds like he cares more about that top rating spot than he cares about the world championship title itself. Um, I do think he likes chess though. So I don't think he's going to do any sort of Fisher disappearance. If he, you know, has a problem with the world championship cycle itself, he'll talk about that, but I, I can't see Magnus just disappearing the way Fisher did. It's fascinating. Also, you, you mentioned, I've never ever put this together, but Kasparov was very much the same way. Even when he lost the title, he still was comfortably number one, and he's still winning super tournaments. And he kind of had this uh, this streak that, like, yeah, I don't ha- officially have the title, but I'm still the best in the world, like, in, like statistically speaking. Um, I guess, I mean, in, in that that regard, uh, you know, does you know, if Nepo does win, first of all, you know, Chess.com having the World Chess Champion, you know, like representing them would be pretty cool, I imagine. <laughs> um, yep. But do you think that that you know the naysayers will say, oh, this this is not a real world championship title or whatever, or you know, or will people just be like, we have this, uh, you know, this this usurper of the throne who we have to like uh, like respect as like the seventeenth world champion or whatnot? Yeah, I I am sure there'll be talk about people saying, oh, he's not really better than Magnus, especially if he like wins in the tie breaks or something that seems weird. But on the other hand. 
like Kromnik beating Kasparov was maybe the best chess match anyone has ever played. Like taking on someone as legendary as Kasparov and scoring plus two, not losing a single game is amazing. And we have, you know, past champions, uh, you know, Petrosian and Irva, who maybe in, in tournaments weren't, weren't the most likely to win every event, but those are legitimate champions. And we look back on history, we're not like, oh, that doesn't count. Right. And I think there's even a, a, a real sense of admiration given, you know, the, you know Oiva beating uh, Alakine and, and uh, Petrosian also, like, you know, putting an end to, to you know, Budvinik's reign and what all, like... I think it's uh, it, w- it would be a very cool narrative, even if they only have the title for, you know, if, if Nepo only has a title for a year or so and Magnus comes back swinging. By the way, also, that would mean that Magnus and Alirez would play each other in the candidates, which would be, you know, that obviously, very... you know, it's not as good as having Magnus Alirez in a world championship, but you have to admit, would still be very interesting, very cool. Because, you know, whatever two games they're going to play, you have to imagine they're Honestly, number one, number two. Honestly, my favorite tournament I think I ever watched was the uh, London 2013 candidates. Such a good tournament. Which was uh, up-and-coming Magnus and trying to get back the throw in Kromnik, sprinting towards the finish, and then both losing in the last round while watching each other's games was just like the most insane end to a tournament ever. Yeah, Vasily Ivanchuk so, yeah, basically that- saving Magnus. <laughs> Yeah, so that uh, that dynamic can make for a wonderful setup. Should be I fun mean, to watch. Or I think even if even if Magnus isn't in the candidates, if Ali Ali Reza is trying to get to the throne, should be exciting. Regardless. Yeah, I definitely. I mean, he, Ali Reza too is just he's like. I also tweeted something. You know, he eats like twenty six hundred gram asses. Like I eat waffles, like, just like <laughs> you know, unrelenting ferocity and uh, just all consuming. He's like Galactus. <laughs> Yeah, and that'll be interesting to see how, you know, in the upcoming years, how Ali Reza's ability to do that translates to how it looks when he's trying to, you know, get plus, you know, just any plus score against Caruana, Carlson, that kind of crowd, um, which is not quite the same thing as getting a huge plus score against 2650s. Yeah, and I also think it's it's um, what you mentioned about the London 2013 candidates. First of all, um, if you guys haven't seen games from that, um, Agad Matur has a playlist on most of those games. I think at least on most of the decisive games, and he does a very good job of actually setting the whole scene. And that's just you know we were talking a little bit about passive improvement. That's like one of the best series that you should just get popcorn and just look at those games. And and you know, you'll get some theory, you'll get some tactics, you'll get some you'll know some of those players from I guess almost wow ten years ago. But you you know you still and have... remember pause pause the video when a god Mator wants you to pause it and try, yeah. try to solve the puzzles exactly exactly and you can also enjoy you know Boris Gelfand uh, friend of the pod I haven't had him on the podcast but he's a, you know he's the you know how like a god Mator has like uh, Mikhail Tal is like the the patron saint of the podcast Boris Gelfand uh, is that okay. is so he's that for this um, but he's in his prime you know playing with the candidates pretty good yeah that that was that was a great event. I didn't get to watch that live. I will say also the 2020 candidates was uh, was really fantastic. I I love those games. Like some of those games, especially in the first round, it felt like watching chess in the year 3000 or something. Like that Caruana MVL game was just like insane. I absolutely I've never seen a crazier opening prep than that in my whole life. I was like just astonished. Like you had these super experts couldn't figure out what's going on, and like I couldn't figure out what's going on either. Like one of the rare times in chess where you just you kind of have to just sit back and enjoy the show and see what they're <laughs> trying to uncork. Yeah, that game was an amazing example of modern chess because it's it was you know 20 moves of prep with these deep sacrifices. And even there, it's not actually proving an advantage. It's proving a it's a theoretically drawn position where the other side has to be super accurate. Right. And then he met, and the Maxime couldn't find this this really really difficult fortress, you know, that the engine was saying zero zero zero, and then suddenly zero point two, and suddenly dead lost, like, which is yep. just. Uh, Although it's incredibly impressive, he even survived to get there. Yeah, I mean, if if you look at the position he had out of the opening, you think he's done, but I mean, he like you know he was he was putting up a hell of a fight, you know, similar yep. to the fight you might put up if you read uh, the next to last mistake. There we are. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, perfect plug yeah i'm getting better at that i'm telling you um excellent yeah <laughs> well um i i guess uh, i do want to move on to the final section because even though you are a return guest uh you were not here for the uh in chess instant insights no air horn this time i've received a complaint on uh 
<laughs> I saw that on Twitter. You know, to the listener who uh, who is upset with the air horn, I'm I'm deeply sorry. I I, I really did not mean to uh, to uh, destroy your ears and your your Bluetooth headphones. So I, I hope you can come back to the podcast uh, someday, and and I, I'll stop. Um, and I'll leave the air horn to be, uh, you know, like three years from now, people look back at the episodes and say, man, I missed that. You know, people who lived at it at the time, they'll remember this history. Um, you should do a poll on the air horn. I, so I did do a, I did a, I did a Twitter poll and actually I think 75% of people want me to keep it. Now, the thing is I haven't used it in the last few episodes cause I myself think that, you know, beyond the shock factor, it's not that, you know, it's. It, 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 it's just I could do better. It's a little lazy. You know, I, I searched up like, you know, MLG air horn sound and, and just played it, you know, kind of harking back to, you know, when I played Call of Duty and ate Doritos like 10 years ago. So <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, I, I, I feel like I could do better. Um, nevertheless, uh, I'm sure you know how this goes. Um, I'm, I'm curious also to hear uh, just just some of these these answers, because I think it would just be a, a nice uh, I, I just think it'll be a nice experience basically for, you know, our listeners to get to know you a little better, hopefully before buying your book on, uh, on Amazon or in Barnes and Noble. So are you ready to enter the, the instant insights, uh, chamber? All right, let's go for it. So, uh, yeah, instant insights, sponsored by aim chest, use code David 30 to get 30% off your, uh, first month with aim chest and we'll get right into it. So first question, uh, do you prefer knights or bishops? I think bishops just on average are better, especially if you have two of them. Bishop pair. There you go. Um, number two. So obviously we did talk about this for, you know, half an hour, but, uh, are you, are you, uh, some people approach this question different. Some people think like, I, I just have it written Carlson or Nepo. And some people think of who it's rooting for. Some people like who they'll win. So you go wild with however you want to interpret that, but I'm going to just ask Carlson or Nepo. Carlson's the clear favorite. I'm rooting for a fun match. That's a, a a very diplomatic political answer. I, I like that. Um, Damn. So yeah, if you're rooting for a fun match, I, I do think you know Nepo Nepo winning would be would be a great thing for chess. Uh, I think the storylines would be would be fantastic. With that being said, I I can't I personally cannot root against Magnus. So, um, but yeah, I understand why people would. But although, and I've mentioned this aside from Lula in my last episode, nobody has picked Nepo. <laughs> no one. So yeah, I don't think a lot of people do. Although I think I remember Kromnik saying that he thinks it's fifty fifty. Yeah, and Kramnik knows Kramnik knows something about matches. I wonder. I also wonder what, what, whether Kramnik is, is maybe helping one of them because every now and then you you know you you look you read the history. I mean, Nepo helped Magnus actually in 2014, Game Six, when Magnus beat uh, Vichy. It was with an idea that Nepo showed him. Actually, one fact. Yeah, they get along pretty well. Although I think Kramnik and Carlson don't get along great. So if anyone's I did not know that Kramnik, it would be Nepo. Uh, yeah, I, had, I did not know that it didn't get along that well. Uh, although I imagine, you know, given the, the one in twenty thirteen, and all. So Carlson the... was was briefly coached by Kasparov, and I think some of the Kramnik Kasparov rivalry sort of translated. I see. Just down a generation. Although Kasparov also coached Nakamura too, interestingly, for like a little bit as well. It doesn't yeah. seem like Kasparov was the most liked as a coach. <laughs> Kasparov's a strong personality. I'm yeah, sure. That's kind of what I, I suspect. I'm sure well. he has. I'm sure he has a lot to say. Yeah. So uh, next question: Where's your favorite place where you've ever played chess? Oh, good one. Um, what's coming to mind right now is uh, just some of those parks in New York. When I visit there, it's always great to. Go to the you know the places where Bobby Fischer hustled people for money, and and you get to try to do the same if you want, or just play for fun. Yeah, real rich history in New York. I, I appreciate it. You know, being in another country, I have to say it's uh, it's it's very special. Um, next question: Who's your favorite chess player of all time? Is it Savelier Tartakovich by any chance? Um, he might be my favorite person talking about chess. I include a bunch of his quotes in the book. Right. He's just not quite as strong as some of the other players of his day. Mm-hmm. Um, there are just so many great players. Um, I love, you know, Petrosian's unique. Lasker's maybe the most practical in the next-to-last mistake kind of sense. Um, today, I really like watching Aronian's games. So that's a bit of a cop-out, but those are all good players. Go, yeah. go watch their games. No problem. Um, what's the most memorable tournament you've ever played? Um, 
for me, I think the thing that affected me the most was I got really lucky and won the Wisconsin state championship when I was like 15 or 16. I can't even remember. Um, like I just alternated draws and wins and somehow snuck into the title with four and a half out of six with a last round win. Um, and I think just realizing that I could do something like that made it a lot more likely that, you know, a few years later when I started looking for jobs that I ended up kind of in the chess world. Mm-hmm. Um, just a few more questions. First of all, what's the favorite game you've ever played? It could be like a blitz game or whatever, but what's the favorite match you've ever played or. Sure. Um, I have a game from the uh, DC Chess League where I used to play. It was, you know, it's a Friday night, once a month kind of league. And we were in the playoffs and I played another master, Andrew Samuelson. And he has really good opening prep. So I just like played uh, an open Nimzo Larson for the only time in my career. And we just got a absolutely wild position. Um, and I managed to come out on top in my team one. Um, so that, that's the story. And probably the individual best move of my career was in there. Although I don't, the game was a little too messy to be my best ever game. Was the game online, but like on chess games by any chance for me people to watch maybe? I don't think so. Damn. Um, I'll have to post it somewhere. <laughs> um, favorite Stay game. Of, yeah, for, for sure. Um, so two more questions. First of all, what's your favorite game that somebody else has played? Um, I'll probably give a different answer if you ask me tomorrow, but, uh, right now it's that, uh, Taimanov Larson game I included in the book. Just fantastic play from Larson there. And you include the whole, whole game, which is also, uh, I thought it was a, was a, was a break from, you know, where a lot of the positions you show are from position or maybe you show half of a game, but I actually, I did, I did see that you put that entire game. So now I know what I'm going to play through tonight. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I wanted to add some context and cause I think it's helpful for people to have like a bit of a story sometimes, you know, and not just get thrust into the middle of something. Well, that's always why I find a lot of these tactic puzzles, like on Lee chess, for example, so difficult because I, I usually, if just to kind of look at positions, like even on the chess.com puzzle, just to look at a, a position and say, find the tactic here is very different from when at the course of the game, you feel that tactic throughout being available. I'm much better at the latter than the former which I don't know how that affects my playing strength or whatever, but I, I do think that in that sense, having the story of the game tells you what to pay attention for and, you know, feel that momentum in a way that you can't always feel the same way. Yeah, I think that's really important in kind of both good and bad ways, because also there could be some tactic that was available a few moves ago, and the, I, the idea that it might be there is kind of clouding your thoughts in a way that if you were just looking at the new position objectively, you wouldn't have. Right, right. Um, the last question is, you know, is the, the pet question of the podcast. Uh, I think I did ask you this before, um, in its old format, um, uh, before I asked if there's one opening you had to teach to anybody, but now I'm just going to ask you, what's your favorite opening? Uh, these days, for whatever reason, I'm really into the Trampowski. Um, I don't know. Everyone else is playing the London and I'm just pushing that Bishop one square further. And I think it's a more fun and better move. I agree completely. Completely agree. And uh, it was actually played at the world championship level very recently in New York. Um, I remember Magnus yep. opened with that. And even though I didn't play chess at the time, I do remember there's some controversy because some people thought he was doing it to reference Donald Trump or something weird. <laughs> so yeah. I, I was playing over that game in the car as I was driving to New York because I actually attended game two of that match. Oh, wow. That's... Yeah, to be fair, it... I was not. I was in the car. I was not driving the car while looking at a chess game. Well, Fabi has the, the you know the, this um, this Tesla ad where he played the chess while driving or something against the Tesla because the Tesla is like a twenty five hundred engine or something you could play against. <laughs> so an engine in both senses of the word. Yeah, both senses. That's true. Um, yeah, I kind of wish I went to that match. I mean, again, I didn't start playing chess until like 2017, 2018, but but still, I the fact that it was in New York, I hope it's in New York again because I really want to go to a World Championship match. So like on my bucket list of things to do. Yeah, they've got a history. Actually, the uh, Kasparov Anand match played at least some of it in the World Trade Center back in 95. Yeah, Hikaru also, he explained on his stream that I think he was there for, I think, game eight or game nine, one of those decisive games. And, uh, you know, they had like the whole the viewing deck or whatever for, for everybody to look. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Okay. So when you go to these games, you might meet the future, the future stars of, uh, of the chess world even. So it's nice. And yeah, um, on that note, I so that's uh, Ames Chess Insights for you. Um, 
new listeners to the podcast, I really hope you enjoyed. Uh, you should buy Jeremy's book. Also, uh, I didn't do this before, but I want to congratulate you on, on the birth of your second child. Um, fantastic. Thank you. Um, yeah. yeah, two kids keeping me busy now. So, you know, maybe another chess book on the way for the, for, you know, in the future, maybe when you have more time when they're in kindergarten and whatnot. Yep. Right now, just marketing this book, but who knows? We'll see what, what the kids inspire me to do. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, yeah, so you guys can buy the next to last mistake in December. Uh, stay tuned for that pre-ordered on Amazon. Uh, like I said, I will write a glowing review um, for that. And uh, I want to thank everybody for listening to this episode of 64 Chess Podcast. I'm planning on recording another one this weekend. Um, like I said, uh, you can use code David30 um, in AimChess to get 30% off your first month. Also, you should check out MagnusNepo.com, which I think as of the release of this episode is live. So go check that out. You can win prizes. Uh, I'll be competing on there. Maybe we can form a team or whatever. I don't know. DM me. Um, but yeah, very exciting stuff uh, for the chess world. Uh, and I will see you guys uh, I'll see you next week, hopefully. So take it easy. Thanks for listening. And oh, of course, uh, don't forget to follow at 64podcast. You could follow Jeremy on Twitter um, at ChessMensch. Uh, fantastic handle like i said the best handle on on chess twitter probably um and uh yeah that's that's basically it for me so i'll see you guys next week